Welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham. Now, my next guest is really interesting. I know I always say that, but when I found out I was interviewing this guy, I thought he is going to have some incredible stories. Something that surprised me, though, was just how moved I was by everything he had to say. I'm talking about the British record holder for summiting Everest, 13 times, in case you're wondering. I'm talking about Mr. Kenton Cool. His vision of the world is truly incredible and something that I think we can all learn a lot from. He is incredibly humble and modest, again something that surprised me, and he is in love with life. He's got a gorgeous family and a lot of adventures still to be had, but he certainly doesn't take anything for granted. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Let me know what you think. For now, relax. For the next 45 minutes or so, well, actually, it's a fair bit longer than that because, well, quite frankly, I didn't want him to stop talking. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy Mr. Kenton Cool. Well, Kenton, um, thank you for joining me today. Uh, it's great to see you. You're in this country for once. I mean, you're normally travelling the world, globetrotting. Although, actually, you do get periods of time where you get to spend quality time with your family, don't you? That's important no, yes, to you. No, t- t- totally. So I'm quite grounded at the moment, doing my, my second job, arguably my most important job of daddy daycare. So, yeah, Jazz, my wife, is uh, in a big stint of work right now. So I'm juggling the children, which is as fulfilling as anything else I do. Absolutely. Well, do you know, because one of my first questions has got to be, and I'm sure it's one that everyone asks you, is how you do cope with family life and how your family life how your family cope with your mountaineering like it, it, this idea that it is an innately selfish thing to do but you've got kids but it sounds to me like you do spend quality time with them as well and in a way in many ways it's better than doing a nine-to-five yeah I, I think so it's finding a balance I, I think all of us in modern world the, the, the work the workplace has shifted my workplace happens to be the mountains and arguably the single hardest thing that I do in connection with my job is to say goodbye to the family. You know, that's the, my wife, Jazz, the, the, two, the two children, um, Willoughby and, uh, and Saffron. And, um, and, to, and to close the door on them and say goodbye for four, five, six weeks, however long it's going to be. And I think the interesting thing is that you picked up on it there Climbing is an inherently selfish thing. I mean, what do we do it for? Well, I suppose for self-fulfillment, a sense of freedom, you know, whatever it is that it brings to us pers- personally. And my only justification for the amount of travel and time away from the family is that it is work. Mm. Mountaineering has morphed into what I do in terms of earning, earning a wage, paying a mortgage, putting food on the table, etc., etc., and I would struggle, really deeply struggle, if I left home as much as I do for, for me mm. and not for us as a collective. We call ourselves the Five Amigos. Uh, that's the dog included. I mean, climbing Everest uh, is traditionally about seven, eight weeks long. Wow. The way that I work in a more bespoke manner, uh, I've done it in three weeks, three days. I've, that's without a client. Mm. 
door to door. With a client, four weeks, two days with Rob Lucas, a lovely, lovely man. Um, it was my client in 2016. And then with Ben, we were five weeks on the, on, you know, on the nose, door to door. And five weeks, I think, is eminently achievable. Mm. But I, I can't say to a client, we're going to leave London or wherever home is and get to the top of Everest and back down safely and back home within four weeks. Mm. You just can't do it. Uh, or not, you know, the, the mountain dictates, not not us. So, so can you imagine ever doing anything else? Um, not really. Uh, retirement, maybe. <laughs> In so much that I've got time to just pursue my dreams and ambitions. But I'm really lucky, uh, and I suspect you're probably the same. I love my job. I deeply adore what I do. And... My connection with the mountains is, is paramount, and I can I can spend one day in a mountain or in the mountain environment you know, w- w- with a client, you know, with a you know, client, a customer, a friend, on my own. It doesn't really matter, and I I get reset, and all of a sudden the angst and the stress that I have from everyday life that surrounds us just evaporates, and that's my job. I'm so lucky. I'm so so lucky to to to, to find that um, thing where I can morph the two together. I mean, it is amazing because most people do associate any stress that develops in their life around their job, and yet your job's the thing that breaks it up. No, it, it does. Uh, okay, so I sat on my computer this morning and I had a call with a potential client in the in the UAE, and now I'm juggling things like that, and I had to pay a, an exorbitant VAT bill, and, and you know, so that's all a bit stressful. So that is part of the job, but the actual physical act of guiding, yes, it's super serious. Get it wrong and it goes seriously wrong but I find it a leveller it's just to be in that freedom of the mountains is it's invigorating and, and presumably it's because you're pitting yourself against mother nature at her most potentially at her most ferocious I, I, I think we're not pitting us, ourselves against because we're always going to lose uh, I mean Ed, Ed Hillary famously said he maybe wasn't the first, but he famously said, you, you never conquer the mountain, you merely conquer yourselves. And I think being in, in Mother Nature, be it diving or running or climbing, whatever it is, you, you are merely existing within a different environment that perhaps most of us are used to. I, I forget what a statistic is, but in I think it's in 50 years, something like 80% of global population will be living in an urban environment. So the urban environment is rapidly becoming our go-to norm, the environment which we are happy to operate in. Yet as a species, we haven't genetically developed into that environment. We're still, in theory, running around, um, not that far removed from being cavemen, hunting food, gathering food. So when we do go in the mountains, I think, deep down somewhere we have a connection already there uh, and it doesn't have to be the mountains it could, you know, it could be your local park or uh, the Cotswold Way or the South Downs or you know, wherever it is the listener is, li- you know, is listening to this just get outside and that's where we have a deep connection with Mother Nature it hasn't been bred out of us yet but and so, so presumably that has always been in you when did you realise that actually mountaineering was going to be 
not just a life, but a career, everything to you. How young were you? Uh, I wasn't young at all. Uh, the I remember vividly the moment of making a decision to apply for the British Mountain Guides. So I'm a fully qualified mountain guide, IFMGA Mountain Guide. That's the International Federation of Mountain Guides Association. It means I can work in Switzerland, France, globally. Um, it's the top gun of mountain guide in leadership, ski guide as well. Because didn't you have a horrible accident where you broke both your heels when you were just early 20s? Yeah, you've got a good memory. Um, or oh, done some research. Um, yeah, I, I had an altercation with the ground. Uh, and when you try to fight Mother Nature, you generally come off second best. So I was um, perhaps batting above my station, jumped on a hard route in North Wales, a hard rock route, on a damp, miserable day. Didn't really want to do it, but a friend of mine had just done a hard route and the competitive nature got better as I jumped on an even harder route I claim I broke a hold so rock climbing you, you know you got hand holds foot holds I to this day I think I broke a hold and fell uh, fell off wasn't that high about 15 feet above the floor that's and then it's yes, high enough I hit the deck and it's in the slate quarry so the floor was covered with in the platelets of slate so it's really hard landing and I shattered both my heel bones uh, which it was quite painful <laughs> uh, so that saw me four and a bit weeks in hospital three and a half months in a wheelchair three operations uh, crutches for forever it felt like but an amazing learning experience uh, amazing care through the NHS you know, we hear in the press these days that the NHS is doomed to failure uh, my yeah, okay, admittedly it was 17 years ago level of care and service second to none so at that point when you had that horrific accident what was your climbing cv like you presumably hadn't summited everest at that stage and yet you went on to do it 13 times kind of fell into everest i know it's a a strange thing to to say but it was 2003 um and i was on the back of a very successful expedition that did the, uh, the first ascent of the southwest ridge on Annapurna 3, a very high mountain in Nepal, mountain nobody's ever heard of, 7,500 metres. Uh, and myself and a colleague, we were going through the um, mountain guides sort of training together, and we were in a his Fiat Panda, of all things, driving up to Scotland for uh, I think our ski assessment uh, to make sure that we could actually ski this is before you even get on the training scheme and we were both living in Chamonix and it always struck me as just totally insane that we had to fly back from Chamonix to go to Scotland to take essentially a ski exam to prove that we could ski and and the 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 oxymoron of this was you know it was the irony wasn't lost on us it's it's like this is ridiculous big deep powder in Chamonix skiing on small patches of ice in Scotland anyway we were driving to Scotland and a telephone rang and it was a man called Simon Lowe um, who I had worked for as a sort of leader on some of his trips lovely lovely man who took a big punt on me um, a long time ago and his main leader for his Everest expedition which was leaving in about five months time had dropped out and he essentially rung me up 
uh, probably I don't know Friday evening it was dark I remember that and it was driving rain and I answered the phone and he essentially said I need a leader for Everest would you step up to the plate and lead an Everest expedition for us uh, and of course I said yes and you talk b- about this tsunami of emotion when you summit a mountain C- can you put that into words can you explain that I mean probably not but no, not as best really. you can for those of us who haven't we, experienced we, 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 it we should ring up Ben because Ben's way more articulate than I am at expressing his emotion um, although he probably just dissolve into tears like he did on summit in fact we, we, we were here so we're recording this at uh, White City House and uh, a few months ago we did a presentation together or Ben did a presentation I happened to be in the audience and he got me on stage and um, I was a little bit naughty actually because somebody asked oh yeah what's the view like and Ben started to say what the view was like and I interrupted him and said Ben how could you possibly know what the view was like because you were crying so much at the top you can't possibly have seen the view <laughs> but how, how do you explain a tsunami of emotion uh, it's almost impossible and, and probably deeply personal as well so yours might differ slightly to his but if you can can you sum it up in, in words is it, is it just something spiritual is it something that you just kind of can you bottle it? Can you revisit it oh, when you're back you home? I if you could bottle it. Oh, my word. You're going to dip into that from time to yeah. time. Wow. But, do you, but can you uh, take yourself to a place when you're back in the sort of grit and grime of London and just take yourself to a place where you remember that feeling? Not really. So I've been dabbling a little bit with sort of mindfulness and I wouldn't say meditation, but mm. yeah, there's a tree that I take myself to and I sort of sit underneath it or sometimes I lie underneath it and just lose myself looking at the movement of the leaves or the branches only, only for a few minutes um, and I suppose that is similar where everything just seems to be aligned and Everest is a, is a funny one in so much that on the top of Everest in the moment everything does seem to be aligned and you sit there and you, and you look out and the, oh, I'm really sorry about this I think about the children I sit there and think about the children and I, and I think about the amazing experience that's got us there myself and the client and it's something I want to share with the family the process of the interaction with nature and the mountain and the people and what it takes to facilitate the execution of what we're trying to do Oh, I came all emotional there. And there's, there's me it's, it's talking about Ben being all emotional. Um, and it's that connection with something which seems so unattainable when you're stood beneath it, yet it, it's worked. And then there's that crash back to reality, almost like some obscene sugar crash, where I'm jolted back to why I'm there. 
and it's facilitating somebody else's ambition and dream. And the summit only represents a very small portion of what we're trying to do. Because generally, I've made a promise to whoever I'm with, let's use Ben as the example, I've made a promise to Marina that I'm going to bring Ben back through the front door. And this is where I need to start to really up my game because Ben has fulfilled an ambition, a dream, and in Ben's case, a, a dream since childhood. And he is now emotionally fragile, physically exhausted. And on the way down is where the little accidents, well, not accidents, the little effects have big big ripples and it's not the beginning of the end it's the end of the beginning and I now and the Sherpa team have to totally focus and up our game so that tsunami of emotion is very short-lived it's a it's it's a tidal wave it's it's a, a bursting dam of all these feelings and and the connection back home with the children and and you can almost taste what it's like walking through the back do- uh, back door at home again and you can you can see it you can visualize it yet it's so it needs to be so far away it's that being able to switch off again and that's so so difficult so difficult i mean it's affected me here today in this beautiful surroundings that we're in in london no, it's dissolve into tears just thinking about what it's like on the, on the top because the view uh, imagine the best you know, imagine whatever it is for, for, the, for you the listener looking at the amazing piece of art or looking out across you know, the most amazing sunset you know, on the, the western tip of Portugal or you're sat there with your loved one with a glass of red wine you know, whatever that moment is that that transcends you to somewhere else that sat on top and you're there looking around and you are so connected in a heightened state with everything around you it's like everything is in technicolor what what do you say to those who who criticize monetizing a mountain you know because obviously you have to charge quite a lot of money to take people up and down and what do you say to them and, and is there a justification for making a living from something that isn't yours? Yeah, it, 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 it's a tricky one. Um, the diehards don't like it. Um, and, and I understand their point of view to, to, to a certain extent. Yeah, I came from being, like, inverted commas, an amateur climber. I sort of made it sort of a little bit commercial by seeking sponsorship when I was at the top of my game and then I became a commercial mountain guide uh, and there's, there's lots of mountains out there which are commercial Mont Blanc um, Matterhorn Everest these are commercial mountains you, you don't have to hire a guide to go to these mountains and a lot of the criticism is that we attempt to lower the mountain to the ability of the climber and in a lot of cases, that is that is the, the, that is true. What I try to do on Everest, I was chatting to a potential client this morning, um, saying you know, the way that I work is eighteen months, two years, normally at a minimum, 
to build the client up to a point where I believe he or she has a legitimate, um, not reason to be there, because the reason is their personal thing, but they, they can be at base camp and hold their head up high, knowing that they're not a fraudulent individual to be there. They have the experience to be on that mountain. Yes, they, they, they need me and the Sherpa team to help facilitate it. But it's not a case that they've never worn crampons. It's not a case that they've never climbed another mountain. Um, but that does happen on Everest. But then it happens on Mont Blanc. It happens on Ben Nevis. These mountains have brought prosperity to the local area. And the Kumbu region, the valley that leads up to Everest, where a lot of the Sherpas come from, that's arguably the most affluent area in the whole of Nepal. Nepal is the poorest nation in Southeast Asia. It has obscene poverty levels. The average salary is about 400 bucks a year. There's childhood malnutrition. There's you know, disease. There's high-level corruption. Yet this, this icon, this beacon of hope that they call Sagamatha, Mother Goddess of the Earth, it has brought prosperity to the Sherpa people. Um, to, to the case that, you know, to the point that the Sherpas are beginning to rise through the caste system because of the prosperity. But it keeps coming back to, you know, what are we in this for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in it to go out to the outdoors and enjoy ourselves, have fun. Why shouldn't that be facilitated to everybody? And I do understand people's criticisms whereby they say, why don't you leave Everest unfixed, i.e. don't put that rope in it, uh, and let people go to other points, you know, of the Himalayas or to other mountains and get their experiences from there. And that would be a valid point. Um, you know, say the, the man or the woman who doesn't have the experience, who thinks they can pay 50, 60, 70, 100,000 dollars and get their hand held to the top of Everest. Why don't they go to another mountain um, and learn their trade, learn their craft, gain the experience? I'm all over that. I know that is the way you should do it. But there is an industry around these mountains. And there is always going to be somebody who's going to take your money, unfortunately, and try to facilitate the ascent. And if those hardcore you know, climbers who have such a, a passionate negativity against others going into the, into the mountains, well, you know, hey, chief, don't go there. They'll go somewhere else. You have the experience to go to other, some other far-flung place in the Alps or in Scotland or in the Himalayas and get your kicks in exactly the same way that others get their kicks.